0: Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet.
1: Hey guys, my name is Sandy. I'm calling from Dorchester, Massachusetts. And I have a
0: bit of a heavier topic for you. I'm hearing about how the world is facing a food crisis right now because of rising prices and the war in Ukraine. I can definitely see prices keep going up in the grocery store But I'm wondering if there's a climate angle to this, too. Like, what does this crisis say about what kind of disruptions we might face with climate change? How much worse can it get? And does this disruption change the way people eat? I don't need
1: to get all doomsday, but I'd love your take on the current crisis. Thanks. The listener is right. We're already seeing terrible food shortages and food inflation. And I'm sorry, but it's going to get a lot worse. Ukraine is Europe's breadbasket. It's a huge exporter of wheat and vegetable oil. So the war is really discombobulating food markets around the world. And meanwhile, there's this terrible drought. I mean, it's especially horrific in the Horn of Africa, but it's bad in a lot of the world. So that's shrinking the food supply, too. The World Food Program is warning of a hunger hurricane. We're talking about a record 345 million people facing an acute risk of starvation. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about how in a warming world, there are going to be a lot more of these breadbasket collapses. But I think that before we even get to the climate, we've just got to say, this is a disaster. And those of us who don't have to worry about where our next meal is coming from or our kids' next meal is coming from, we're just incredibly lucky right now.
0: We are. And this is a terrible situation. Um, But the real heartbreak is coming from the developing world, because that's where people are at risk for starvation. And in the developed world, and especially here in the United States, we don't have that much of that. But that doesn't mean we don't have hardship. And we're seeing it across the country. Food pantries right here at home are seeing more people come in because food is getting less affordable, apparently, every single day. And, you know, the thing about food prices is that they are one of the few things that can actually change the way people eat. We know from previous price spikes and previous recessions uh, that when food gets expensive or money gets tight, people's habits change. And it's possible that those habits might even change in a way that's better. Better for them. Better for the environment. Better for the climate. But it—you know it's such a trivial thing and it, it sounds even stupid to talk about it because people are starving in other parts of the world. It,
1: does feel like missing the point. I mean, shortages means people suffer. And you always hear that cliche about how crises are opportunities, right? Rahm Emanuel had that famous line about how a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. But I think we got to start out by saying that crises suck. And there are often opportunities for bad policies and bad politics that can make things even worse. That said, it is true that crises, they can be teachable moments. And this one is showing us the very direct link between climate change and food shortages. Not just the droughts that are wiping out harvests in Africa and South America, but look at the recent heat waves that are scorching crops in Europe and killing livestock here. Now we've got torrential flooding and farmland in the Midwest. This crisis is really like a postcard from the future. It's a warning of what's waiting for us if we don't fix the climate.
0: Uh, Always with the good news, Mike. But this is a really important issue. The economics, the politics, the ethics. And it's complicated. We're going to talk about what governments can do, what individuals can do, and what's going on in the grocery store.
1: You know we're not going to waste a crisis. I'm Michael Grunwald.
0: And I'm Tamar Haspel. And this is Climavores, a show about eating on a changing planet. So, just after we finished saying it was stupid to talk about Americans changing eating habits, I do want to talk about it a little bit. We have a couple of surveys about how Americans are changing in a response to higher food prices, and I think it's worth just taking a look at how that's playing out. Um, for starters. eight out of 10 people are saying that they're not doing probably the single most important thing that reduces how much you spend on food, and that is not going out, not going to restaurants, not going to bars. But more than half of people say that they're making changes to their actual diet. And of those, 72% of those people say that they're eating less meat, about half of people are switching to packaged or frozen foods. And more than half have said that they stopped buying organic produce. And Archer Daniels Midland, which is one of the biggest grain traders in the world, has just reported that demand is shifting away to chicken feed from beef feed. And since they sell the grain for those things, that's how they know. And the chicken industry is actually predicting increased demand. So it does look like there's a shift away from beef, which is more expensive, to chicken, which is less expensive. And, you know, we saw similar things in in the 2008 recession. People ate out less, and people actually ate a little better. They had better diets overall. They ate fewer calories. They had more family meals. And, you know, not going out is one of the best ways to improve the quality of your diet because the people who feed you in restaurants are heavy-handed with butter and cream and salt because that's those are things that make food taste good. And usually food that's prepared in the home is better for you than food that you get in restaurants. But again, you know, this is just this is a flat out bad thing. When food pantries are inundated with people needing assistance, um, this, there's, there's no silver lining to this. And even if there were, it wouldn't matter very much because it's going to be short lived. When things go back to normal, then people's habits just revert to what
1: they did before. <laughs> that's right i mean i do th- i do think this is kind of trivial i remember i just i just wrote a column for canary media about how really the biggest change in <laughs> reducing climate change probably over the last half century has been the societal first world shift from beef towards chicken and it does make a difference but this isn't how you want to do it—not through a food crisis. Um, and like you said, this is a this is going to be completely short term. I mean, we we drove less during the COVID crisis, right? And everybody said, "Oh, well, is this, maybe this is going to change our gasoline consumption habits." But you know, it's already back to normal. I mean, high and high prices the the. They're temporary. They they don't change eating habits permanently. And in fact, they could even encourage agricultural expansion and deforestation in the same way that high gas prices can encourage more drilling. I think the important thing to to think about is just that high prices are just really bad for ordinary people. Uh, And sometimes environmentalists think they fall into the trap of cheering that high fossil fuel prices will get people to use less But gloating about pain at the pump as a climate victory, it just makes people think that climate action must be painful and climate hawks must be, you know, human-hating ghouls. I I just think, like, we don't want to fall into that trap with food. I mean, we are going to talk about government policy later. And it is true that policies that make food, and especially beef, more expensive, they can pencil out with some climate benefits. I mean, sure, like, you want to tax beef? good luck with that. Uh, My my favorite example is biofuel mandates, right? You see all these shoddy studies that claim they're going to reduce emissions. But then when you look at the fine print of the models, most of the benefits come because they make beef so expensive that people in the developing world eat a lot less. I mean, great. That is not what we're going for. I think our our main point here is just that starvation is not a climate policy. Uh, People have this hierarchy of needs. And we have got to make sure that people have enough to eat first and then we can think about the other stuff. So this crisis, it's not
0: so much that we're going to talk about what's the impact on the climate, but this is like a prelude of the things that we're going to see more often because climate is going to cause food crises.
1: That's right. We don't just have this acute short-term food shortage. This is really foreshadowing our chronic long-term food shortage. And climate change is going to make shortages worse. And as we're going to discuss, those shortages can make climate change worse. So, Tamara, I I did mention that this this crisis is like a postcard from the future, (laughs) a kind of dystopian future, Um, that it's not just a, a momentary emergency. So I think maybe I should explain a little bit uh, more what I meant. And this is, as you know, I've I've talked a lot about how the big problem that we're facing is how we're going to feed the world without frying the world. We're going to have 10 billion people by 2050, and they're going to need a lot more food, probably 50% more calories than we're producing today. But we can't keep clearing forests to grow it. Right now, we're on track to deforest another 14 Californias worth of land. I think I mentioned in a, in a previous episode that that's like two Indias, and that would just be a catastrophe for the climate. So we are going to need higher yields. We are going to need to create more food with less land. And, uh, you know, the kind of spoiler alert is that climate change is a drag on yields. I think a lot of us, you see those feature stories about how climate change is coming for your beer. It's coming for your wine. It's coming for your coffee. Like, oh, no. But I mean, seriously, it's coming for your food. I mean, we're seeing these horrific droughts, these structural droughts in California that's taking aquifers out of commission. 500,000 acres of the most fertile land in America are going to have to remain fallow. In Africa, you're seeing these deserts advancing so that areas that have been feeding people are going to just no longer be arable land we just saw in uh in the last few months in in the united states because of these heat waves you're seeing thousands of cattle being culled and just think these cattle that have been you know burping and farting for for years and creating all these emissions uh taking up all this land and suddenly they're they're being killed it's it's just a complete waste the scientists are saying that if Climate change plays out the way it's currently playing out. You can see wheat yields around the world decline by a third. And that just means, like, we're not going to have enough food. It means we're going to have to chop down the Amazon to, to grow it. So the bottom line here
0: is that the hedge against crisis is super simple. It's more food. Because the more food we can produce... The bigger our cushion is, and if we take a hit like the war in Ukraine or like the hits we're anticipating taking or are already beginning to take on food production because of climate change, we have to have enough
1: reserve to be able to feed people. I do think it's important to point out, like, you know, there have always been these Malthusians through time who are like, oh, you know, the population is growing. We're going to run out of food. And they've always been wrong. Um, but and I do think so far. Like, I have a lot of I have a lot of faith that if we have to, you know, produce a lot more food over time, we'll do it. The problem is, can we do it without tearing down the Amazon, without tearing down the Congo rainforest, without making these climate problems that are going to to make yields even lower, can we do it without making them completely disastrous? Um, And that, I think, is the challenge. Okay, so
0: we're going to do a little U-turn in tone here because it has been all dismal bad news up to this (laughs) point. But I think it's time to talk about some of the ways that we can do that because I think we have tools at our disposal and we need to be clear on what they are and how to use them. So here we're going to talk about four, count them, four ways that we can ensure that we can feed the world, that we can grow more food on the same amount of land that we're using right now. And the first one is the one that we get the most hate mail about and which Mike, as he says, bangs his spoon on his high chair about all the time, and that is eating less beef. And, uh, you know, it, we're not going to relitigate litigate uh, how cattle work in food systems because we had a whole episode about that, and I'm going refer to refer you back to it. But, you know, just today I saw something from the World Resources Institute that indicated that if the developing world cuts beef consumption by half, that Almost makes the problem of producing enough food go away. That's how big a contributor beef is.
1: well, if if there that it it does take a big chunk out of the problem if if we also do some of these other things we're going to talk about.
0: Okay, so number one is eat less beef. Number two, we have to tackle food waste. Something like a third of all of the food that gets grown globally, gets wasted. And that's just not a tenable situation. Um, And, you know, there there are a lot of people who say, okay, well, if we do food waste, then we don't have to do these other things because that alone will give us the cushion because, look, it's a it's a third of what we produce. And, you know, that may be true,
1: but we can't just will the problem away. It's it's an intractable problem. Right. And you can't just snap your fingers and get rid of, you know, civil wars and bad governance and infrastructure problems, uh, you know, where where there's no cold storage in the developing world and they can't get food to market because the roads are so bad. Those are a real problem. When we waste food, we waste all the land used to grow it, all the fertilizers, the chemicals, the labor, the fresh water. It's a disaster, and we really do need to tackle it. But at the same time, even if we did cut food waste in half, which I think is, uh, you know, the goal, it's an official goal in the United States and for the United Nations, we would still need a lot more food.
0: Although there's one thing I have to say for this issue about food waste, and it's like just about the only issue that pretty much Everybody agrees on. So when you say you have to tackle food waste, you don't get hate mail. So right. every, no every time we pro food waste <laughs> right. lobby, right? so every time we talk about beef, I think we should talk about food waste too, just to, to balance things out in the kumbaya department. All right. So strategy one is cutting beef. Strategy two is cutting food waste. Strategy three, and this is Mike's bugaboo, we have to do something about biofuels. Just here in the United States, about a, a third, a little less, of our corn acreage goes right into cars. And if we were to take that acreage and and eat that corn instead of putting it into cars, that's enough Calories for the entire population of the United States for the entire year, and I'm not advocating the all corn diet, but I just want to give an idea of what the scale is, and that's just here in the United States.
1: I mean, just the uh, the amount of corn it takes to fill up your your Ford uh, Ford Explorer's tank. Um, could feed a human being for a year. And this really is an obsession of mine. Uh, You know, the the corn ethanol industry, they once made an enemies list. And I'm... Somewhat proud to say that I was number one.
0: I thought I saw your picture in the post office.
1: (laughs) It is just a ridiculous waste of good farmland. You know, we are wringing our hands like, gosh, we need more land around the world so that we don't have to cut down all these forests. And then it's like, wait, what? We are using, you know, 30, 40 million acres in the United States. To, to grow this insignificant amount of fuel, it's just really crazy. Okay, so talk a
0: little bit, though, about what happens when, if we don't use corn for, for biofuel, and instead we have to resort to fossil fuels for that, we have to resort to gasoline instead. What's the climate equation on that substitution?
1: Well, uh, gasoline is not good for the climate, as I think we all know. Ethanol and other biofuels are way worse. For predictable reasons, when you use land to grow fuel, somewhere else you're going to have to find more land to grow food. And that land probably isn't going to be a former parking lot. It's going to be a former forest. Um, It's just an efficiency thing. Land turns out to be really good at storing carbon and growing food, but land is really bad at growing energy. If you're going to use an acre of land to grow ethanol, you can use that same acre to put solar panels on it, and you'll get 100 times as much energy. For food, we have no other option except to use land. I mean, as we discussed in our last episode, vertical farms just aren't going to do it. But we actually do have other options for, for, you know, when it comes to energy. We can use electric vehicles for transportation. you all often hear that ethanol is this win-win-win solution, but no, it is lose-lose-lose. Okay, so, so
0: far, we're eating less beef, we're wasting less food, we're ditching biofuels.
1: I mean, f- good luck with that politically. <sighs> okay, well, yeah. we'll
0: talk about that, because <laughs> that's an important conversation to have. The fourth one, and and this is big, and it's so polarizing in the ag community, but we have to preserve yields. We can't start growing less food on the same land um, but at the same time, we also have to try and make sure that we minimize the environmental impact of growing all of that food. And you, you see this dichotomy in ag where, you know, people say yields and then other people say regenerative um, and and they focus on the environment. But, you know, the best definitions of regenerative ag, and you know what a big fan I am of that term, um, uh, incorporate the idea of yields that what what regenerative agriculture has to do is maintain or increase yields while while decreasing environmental impact and if there is one fight that i find counterproductive well no, i take that back there's so many counterproductive fights i can't even choose but but this idea of yield no environment no it's like tastes great less filling except it's all bad and so uh, safeguarding yields is is super important as we go forward.
1: Well, let me jump in a second because we've got to do more than safeguard yields. You know, I t- I gave that, you know, those sort of scary stats about how we're on track to deforest another two Indias worth of land if we want to feed the world by 2050 that assumes that we continue to increase our yields at the same rate we've increased them throughout the Green Revolution for the last half century. And I got some bad news, because back at the beginning of the Green Revolution, we didn't have fertilizer all over the world. Most of the world didn't have irrigation. And now we have it. So it's going to be a lot harder to keep increasing those yields, even if we didn't have climate change, you know, creating heat waves and floods and droughts. So I think we are going to need massive yield increases. And that is going to be really hard to do as, you know, again, we've talked about how regenerative agriculture, it can do a lot of really good things for the soil, for the land, for biodiversity. But in general, organic agriculture does have a yield hit and the world cannot afford a yield hit.
0: Two things. First, your point about the the Green Revolution, I think, is really important because we've already made a lot of big strides in yields. However, um, some of those advances haven't come to sub-Saharan Africa as quickly as they've come to other parts of the world. And since that's a place that is very vulnerable when it comes to famine and starvation. I have hopes that some of the same kind of improvements that we've seen, certainly in the developed world, but also in Southeast Asia and Latin America, can be replicated along with some of the lessons that we've learned about environmental impact.
1: Tamar, I 100% agree. We absolutely need to increase yields, particularly in in sub-Saharan Africa, um, and that's where they're so low. But the fact is that they are... Yields there are so low that when we talk about how the world is going to need seven quadrillion more calories or we need to produce 50% more food, um, yields are so low there that even if we double or triple them, it's barely going to make a dent in our global yield problem. So I 100% agree Um, there needs to be real changes in sub-Saharan Africa, but that ain't gonna be enough.
0: No, I totally agree. And and you know, no, no one thing is gonna be enough. And that's sort of the running theme here is that you know we have to tackle this from from all fronts. And and you know, these conversations are difficult because sometimes like we get in. You mentioned the organic yield penalty, and it's a real thing. But I don't oppose organic agriculture, even though. Uh, The yield penalty is a thing, because I think that those farmers are experimenting with some of the kinds of practices that can build resilience, that can increase soil organic matter. We can't feed the world with it. But as a niche, I I think it's okay. But by the same token, I would like to see the regenerative and the organic community change their minds about genetically modified crops. Because I, I get why people hate them so much, because the first one was herbicide tolerance, and all genetically modified crops got tarred with the Roundup Ready brush – and there was, there was such pushback against them. But now you're looking at completely different kinds of genetic modification. And just this week, I saw two genetically modified crops cross my desk. One is a drought-resistant wheat, and the other was a kind of rice that can increase yields by about 40%. And that's just a tool we cannot afford to turn our backs on.
1: I, I totally agree. And and I, I think a lot of people point, you know, some of the people who hate GMOs, and of course, you know, they're practically illegal in a lot of Europe. Um, and they say that the, you know, the yield boosts that that uh, some of the in- industry talks about have been exaggerated. And that there's actually some truth to that. Oh, there Round is. Roundup Ready has not been a huge yield boost around the world, um, but... I think you've mentioned the key is that in the future with CRISPR, um, with gene editing, um, there is such unbelievable potential for real super crops that can provide a lot more food on a lot less land in much less hospitable conditions that we're going to be seeing. And that's going to be really important. At the same time, I think there are also, you know, potential yield boosts that, that some regenerative people are going to like a lot more. You know, silvopasture, we're seeing in, in, uh, in South America, and Latin America, that it can actually boost yields as well as, you know, providing real soil benefits um, that's that's growing basically growing trees in pastures um, we're starting to see some alternative fertilizers and pesticides that can help things grow and can fight pests just like our current ones do but without all the nasty toxic chemicals that destroy the microbiome so I think the key is that we do need to increase supply to meet demand we absolutely need food abundance but yeah if we can figure out ways to do that with less environmental impact, that's really important because we need to reduce on-farm emissions about seventy-five percent as well. So yeah, it's as you always say, it's yes and.
0: Yeah, it is yes and 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 you know this whole super simple idea: we just need more food. Also, has it has an impact on, of course, what food costs.
1: And the more food we have, the cheaper it's going to be. And exactly. If- this is economics 101, right? right? If you increase the supply the price comes down and we're seeing it the opposite right now when you don't have enough supply the price goes up and so yes so not only you know are we you know feeding the world and uh, you know providing the calories that we're talking about and checking our climate boxes but we are keeping food affordable and that is so important but cheap food is
0: another thing that raises the hackles of people here in the first world. Because, of course, there's cheap food lentils and then there's cheap food Twinkies. And and when we think of cheap food, um, a lot of people's minds, mine too, go to cheap junk food. But, you know, cheap junk food is sort of a necessary corollary to cheap food, because if there are cheap staple crops, cheap corn, cheap soy, cheap legumes, cheap grains, um, there are always going to be food manufacturers who are going to turn those products into something that's still very cheap, but that people find much more palatable. And so the choice is going to be, okay, yeah, you can have cheap lentils, you can have cheap Twinkies, and the reality is most people are going to choose the cheap Twinkies, but that doesn't mean we
1: shouldn't have cheap food. That's right. I think it's a it's a little bit of a separate issue. A, a good analogy there is housing, right? We want affordable housing. And the way to do that is to make sure that we have a robust housing supply, that we're building enough apartments for people to live in so that there isn't scarcity. And then people say like, oh, yeah, but some of this housing is cheap. It's not good. And it's like, you know what? We need to do something about that. Just the way, you know, we need to do something about the fact that we all, I'll eat too many Twinkies. But that doesn't mean that we don't want food to be affordable and plentiful in the same way we want housing to be affordable and plentiful.
0: Okay. So now let's just go back to our four things less beef, uh, tackle waste, ditch biofuels, and maintain yields. And now let's talk about the hard part, which is how can we get those things done?
1: So so tomorrow, not to come back to this same issue of regenerative and organic, but uh, let me troll a little bit and talk about what we shouldn't do about this problem, right? And I again, I understand the excitement about soil health. I understand why people are uncomfortable with what fertilizers are are doing to air pollution and particularly water pollution, the dead zone in the in the in the Gulf. But look what just happened in Sri Lanka, where they decided that they were essentially going to mandate organic agriculture. Everybody was – every farmer was going to go organic. They actually banned fertilizer imports. And what happened? The country ran out of food. They had like an incredible crisis and, uh, you know, it overthrew the government.
0: Uh, Okay, everybody agrees that Sri Lanka was a disaster. But I'm going to make the case that that was not a referendum on organic agriculture. That was a referendum on government intervention. And, uh, you know, the idea that you should just mandate that tomorrow everybody start farming organically, everybody knows that's a terrible idea on, you know, no matter what side of agriculture you're on. Um, And it had results that were, unfortunately, kind of predictable. Um, And in some ways, that's an object lesson on government intervention and how difficult that is. And actually, we cross-posted an episode of the Hot Farms podcast that detailed some of the efforts that people are going through in the U.S. to try and get more climate-friendly agriculture but with more doable and more reasonable changes, so I I would say that Sri Lanka is an outlier, and it's not really about organic.
1: Well, it's a little bit about organic, right? <laughs> I think uh, you know they forced everybody to go organic, and yields plummeted. And I do I understand that people are going to say there were other there were other. Forces at play. But it does remind me a little bit about how you know you hear leftists say, like, oh no, the problem with communism was just never tried. I mean, they tried organic in a big way. All right, I'm gonna work. take
0: that example and and because I'm gonna push back on that a little bit, because the thing about organic is that farmers choose to do it. And they choose to do it for a reason, usually because they're ecologically minded, but also because it's a more profitable way to farm, at least in in the United States and so when it's a self-selected group organic can work just like when it's a self-selected group like uh, socialism can work and and the best example is kibbutzim in Israel because people <laughs> decided to do it so I don't think that's a legit analogy
1: well let's let me uh shift this a little bit to something we can uh we can maybe agree on because because uh, you did mention like I, I enjoyed listening to that hot farms podcast and uh, I hope everybody you know, now follows them, um, but it sort of took for granted this idea that, that, uh, that sort of these regenerative practices like no-till really are necessarily climate-friendly, that they store more carbon in the soil. And I would push back a little and suggest that the, the jury is really out. Um, so what I think I would say is that whatever we decide that government is going to promote in the agricultural space— Um, that we're going to want to see that there's evidence behind it. I mean, right now there is a tremendous amount of energy in the Biden administration, in corporate America, um, and even in carbon markets for rewarding farmers who do regenerative practices that store carbon. And I think that sounds fine, um, but we better make sure that it actually stores carbon. I think one of the reasons there's so much energy behind that is because it's – politically quite doable. Okay, Mike. Yeah, I totally
0: agree that if the goal is to store carbon and that's the only goal, yeah, we need we need the evidence for that. But some of these practices that that we're talking about, and you know, no-till in particular, and also cover crops, have other environmental benefits at all. And I think we have to avoid, even though this is climate wars, we talk about climate. But I don't think we we can have climate tunnel vision here. We do have to look at the other aspects of environmental impact. And I would argue that all of the practices that you know we're talking about trying to encourage do have benefits. And yeah, it's a real hard, it's difficult to get a handle on exactly how much carbon they store. Um, And we got to work on that. And your point is well taken. But they have other benefits too.
1: Well, I I 100% agree that if not necessarily 100% or all of those practices have environmental benefits, most of them absolutely do. And I Mm -hmm. like that. But I do think there's a little bit of a, you know, it's like yes, certainly organic is fine, is and regenerative fine if it's niche. Um, then you know if it's just a niche thing, like you said, yeah. Then it's then we can still find other ways to use other, the rest of the world's farmland to uh, to feed the planet. Um, but remember, the idea of this regenerative movement, the save the soil movement, is that this is what farming should be in the future. And I think we have to be really aware that like yields have to be non negotiable. I do, think, I do think one of the reasons there's so much energy and, and particularly on the government side behind, you know, let's support these practices is not only because they have environmental benefits. God knows government has not always been great for the environment, but because what we discussed earlier about the art of the possible, um, like the politics of banning biofuels, like good luck. I mean, right now, President Biden, for all of his climate talk, he's pushing for more biofuels. And, uh, you know, the politics of, you know, we've talked about a kind of Manhattan project for alternative proteins to reduce beef and other meat consumption. Again, that could be really great, but the politics are really hard because cattle and dairy industries don't like the competition. But paying farmers to do stuff? That is really good politics. Um, now, paying them to do regenerative stuff, that's, that's good, but also paying them to increase their yields, you know, to research in the kind of agricultural innovation that can produce more food on less land, that seems really doable to me. So I'm all for, like, we have a lot of farm subsidies in this country. There's $500 billion worth of f- farm subsidies around the world. Um, I think it's probably a fool's errand to say, let's get rid of those subsidies. Instead, let's really try to direct them that are going to solve this problem of feeding the world without frying the world, that are going to get us more food and less deforestation.
0: Well, I think that beyond paying farmers, obviously, we can have government investment in R&D and in experimentation to try and figure out exactly the thing you were talking about. What are the benefits? Uh, of these of these particular practices, so yeah, I mean, the government can pay farmers for some of these practices, and you know that's controversial in various ways, but I'm convinced that there are ways that we can do it, you know, constructively and that can help achieve these goals. And, you know, the government can just do it on the government end, where they invest in r and d, in innovation, in crop development, and and experiments because, we have to figure out how crops can continue to thrive as the the climate changes.
1: And I think the the key is the art of the possible that farmers can support that. And as we said, the same with with food waste, right? That there's a lot that government can do and there's not gonna be massive opposition from the agro-industrial complex or any other complex because, you know, nobody wants food waste. And there really is a lot that government can do to help, you know, you can imagine, you know, consumer education programs, which have worked really well in the United Kingdom, reduced food waste 20% in five years, Um, you know, composting programs and all kinds of technology from, you know, these these sort of biotech peels that help, that help, uh, you know, can help your avocado last longer to, you know, the internet of things where, you know, your refrigerator can tell you when your food's about to go bad, um, or blockchain technologies that can help with the, uh, you know, with inventory control.
0: I think I'm a little less, less optimistic about the tech end of this than, than you are, but, My thing about food waste is, okay, I've got to take it back to my beloved staple crops because some of the food that goes to waste less is food that isn't as perishable. So the backbone of a diet that's healthy for people and planet is staple crops. It's whole grains, legumes, tubers, you know, some tree fruits. And these are foods, for the most part, that are storable, that are versatile, and they get wasted less. So I think we need to sort of shift our way of thinking about a climate friendly diet and we've talked about this before so that you know vegetables aren't the first thing that come to mind.
1: That's that's true but remember in the in the third world there are these terrible problems, even with staple crops, with storage, where you have rodents getting into it, oh, um, yeah. with with transportation, with uh, even with food getting left in the fields because they have such primitive harvesting equipment. So there, again, these are ways that governments, the United States can help around the world to reduce food waste in ways that nobody's going to say like, hey, why are you getting Senegal better harvesting equipment? I just think that this is a real possibility for, for a way that we can move the needle without having people scream like you know beef is good or beef is bad or you know or regenerative mm-hmm. is good or regenerative is bad.
0: All right, so we kind of promise people things that we can do about this, but unfortunately, and this is why it's such a hard problem, um, the, you know the list is sort of is short and and difficult and these are not no-brainers and we just have to sort of keep chipping away on them. But if you had to sort of sum up all right, this is a this food crisis is a postcard from the future, of climate crises to come. Um, how would you sum up what it tells us and what we should do about food crises in general?
1: You know, it's interesting. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, about the politics of this stuff, and uh, right now in the United States, there's a lot of talk about uh, you know whether President Biden should declare a climate emergency. Um, but I think everybody, even you know, a climate hawk as intense as I am, we got to admit that the politics of a climate emergency are just way tougher than the politics of a food emergency. Because even when we're seeing the wildfires and the floods every day, you know, these real climate impacts, you see the, you know, glaciers melting in greenland it just doesn't feel like a call 911 emergency the way people starving does a lot of people think of food as a like need to do it's mm-hmm. human suffering while climate is a nice to do it's an it's an environmental issue that maybe we ought to think about i do think though a crisis like this shows that you know climate is about human suffering too and you know, the real takeaway here is that food shortages are a climate issue. They're intertwined and climate change is going to make it harder to make more food. And, you know, This lack of food is going to make it a lot harder to fix climate change because we're going to be very tempted to tear down the Amazon to create more food. You know, my appeal would be for policymakers, but also people, you know, also eaters, to think of food and climate as something that go hand in hand and that there needs to be a politics of abundance for food. Um, not as a, you know, oh, the economy is more important than the environment or, you know, people are more important than trees, but that, you know, more food is going to help solve all of these problems. It's a no-regret solution. And
0: it's a big solution to a big problem. And so, you know, my takeaway on this is – I. I'm going to go full out kumbaya on you. My (laughs) takeaway is that I really wish people would stop sniping so much. I recently wrote a column about how one of the things people can do is sub in well-raised pork for half your beef. And, you know, that can reduce the climate impact of your diet by 20%. And I heard from the vegans who said, don't you know that we should just eat plants instead of subbing in meat for meat? And I heard from the, the cattle people who said, don't you know that cattle can do all of this for soil health and, and, and we should eat cattle instead of pork? And we have so many people tackling this from so many different dimensions And, you know, it just gets so frustrating when the answer is always, no, no, this is the solution. And like you said, I would like to hear a lot more yes and because this is a really big problem.
1: Well, speaking as somebody who is pro-sniping and (laughs) anti-kumbaya... I will first point out that, yes, like, you know, we're going to need a lot of solutions. I still think we got to focus on evidence because some solutions are better than others. But mostly, I think I'm going to have to unfortunately admit that you are right. And we should probably all lower the temperature a little bit on, uh, on how we fight about food.
0: I'm working on him, people. I'm, I'm working on him. Climavores is a production of Postscript Media, and we want to know what you're thinking. We want to answer your questions, especially if they're hard. So give us a call. We're at 508-377-3449, or you can send us an email at climavores at postscriptaudio.com. We could feature your question on an upcoming episode. The show is hosted by me, Tamar Haspel. And me, Michael Grunwald. Our executive producers are Scott Clovena and Stephen Lacey. Ann Bailey is senior editor. Cecily Mesa-Martinez is the managing producer, and Dalvin Abouage is the
1: associate producer. Engineering is done by Sean Marquin and Greg Villefranc. PostScript Media is supported by our friends at Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. Giving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, rate us on Spotify. And if you have a climate-conscious foodie in your life, give them a link. And we'll be back again next week with a new episode.